It is so good to have this combined service today, and uh, it's an honour to have both families together today, which I think is fantastic. Resurrection. Jesus has risen again from the dead, which is good news. It is good news for the whole world to know that death and evil that injustice is defeated. That on Good Friday, death died its death. And that Sunday is the revelation of that victory realized in the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And yet, we have this text that I'll get to in a moment. This text in John 20, where on the early morning of Easter Sunday, we have Mary at the tomb, weeping, in grief, crying. She'd not yet known that her Lord had risen, risen from the dead. And I believe in order to fully appreciate the resurrection and the joy that brings and the new world that's ushered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we must first enter into that early Sunday morning with Mary. Because the early morning of that Sunday, it didn't start with joy. It didn't start with glee and hope. It started with grief and heartache and pain. And I believe that whilst the good news of Jesus and his resurrection is the center point of today's service, and that is certainly true, I also believe that to fully appreciate the good news we have to first enter the story of this Sunday morning and enter into the story of Mary at the tomb. Not with hope to start with, not with joy, but with grief, with tears. We have to enter into Mary's tears in the world of death first to rightly inform our joy into the new world of life that has become true in the resurrection of Jesus. There we have to see the grief first before we can enter in to the joy of resurrection. The text today comes out of John 20, verses 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started to run for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the stripes of linen, of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. Stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead and tell my brothers, and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Holy Spirit, I ask right now, open our minds, open our hearts, open our ears to receive what you want us to receive today. Lord, what is of you, let it stick and stay, Lord. And if there's anything that is not of you today, let it fall to the ground. Now let your Holy Spirit move. In Jesus' name, amen. Grief gets a hold of us all. If you're young and haven't yet experienced grief, I hate to say it, but one day you will experience grief. It's a sad and perhaps morbid reality to face, but nonetheless one that we must face. That I'll be sitting around a dinner table with family and friends. And either I will see every single one of them die or they will see me die. Grief gets a hold of us all. Just like grief got a hold of Mary on that early Sunday morning. I remember 2015 was perhaps one of the worst years of my life. I had two people very close to me die in a span of 10 days. I remember being in the hospice where my granddad was on his deathbed. It was a dimly lit room. His belly huge from the the cancer, the tumor that had overtaken 
his body. And he was in that state where he, he couldn't talk, his eyes were closed, he could only hear that gaspy noise that people near death's door make. And I did something I never thought I would do, because I'll be honest, I'm not really one of those people who just, um, well, let's just say this, I'm not one of those people who would normally just randomly do this, but in the middle of this hospice with my auntie in the room and my mum in the room and my nana and myself and, and granddad, with the door wide open with everyone being able to hear, I uh, decided to sing Amazing Grace to my granddad. And then afterwards, I burst out in tears. And that was, I said goodbye, I left the hospital room. And within 48 hours, he was gone. Then, I was at someone's house, a dear person who mentored me. And 10 weeks early, he'd been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumour. And so there I was at this house with, with many people in this house helping out. Him also in his bedroom, on his deathbed. And I remember that I was like sleeping on the couch for like five days. It was a, it was a crazy time of... crazy time. And my mentor said, who's actually here today, my other mentor, not, not the one who was dying, my mentor said to me, she said, this will define your ministry. And then she also said, that when we're close to death, we are on sacred ground. I remember when he died, this compound of grief in me, first my granddad, now my mentor, it's like my chest was empty, sewn up, and then sucked in like a vacuum. That's how it felt like. Grief, at some point or another, gets a hold of us all. And so here we have Mary, trotting on sacred ground, near the tomb of the one she loves. And in this scene, we see a shock, a disruption to the sacred, because as far as she knows, someone's taken her Lord away. Imagine being at a funeral of a close friend to then hear two days later that somebody had robbed their grave. It's a shock to the system, a disruption of the sacred. It is a compound of grief on top of grief. It would have been an extra intensity of grief for her. You see, she had lost a friend. She had lost somebody who gave purpose to her life. And yet, it wasn't just about her loss and her grief. That embodied in Mary's grief was a larger grief of the people who believed that Jesus was coming to save the day and to rescue them. You see, Jesus' followers, the people who trusted him, they weren't aware that Jesus would have to die and rise again from the dead. So all they see is a defeated friend, one executed by the Roman Empire, one that was meant to save them from the very people that executed him. You see, within the heartbeat 
of, the of their ancient prophets was a hope that God would rescue them. God rescues them from slavery in Egypt, the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. But then there's captivity of Assyria and Babylon. And so hope emerged amongst the prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and the rest of them. A hope emerged that one day there would be a Messiah, an anointed one, a king, who would not only rescue them from their plight, but would be the king for the whole world. And within the prophets, within the imagination of the prophets, within the writings of the prophets, became this hope that one day, when the Messiah reigns, death itself would be defeated, that all of God's people will rise again from the dead. And they called this hope the hope of the age to come. In the Hebrew, it's Olam Haba. We sometimes translate it eternal life. The life of the age to come. A day where God will bring his Messiah and death will literally be defeated. The king will rule the nations. And God's people will be in a perfect, restored creation. A new creation. A restored creation. This was their hope. And so when Jesus rocks up on the scene, of course, what do they see? They see somebody feeding 5,000 people. This is a sign of God's new world. The hungry will no longer go hungry. He sees people, he sees, he sees, he sees them, he sees him rising people from the dead. A sign, oh, this is a signpost of that, of that day that's coming. Healing people from an infirmity and diseases. People have that anticipation. Yes, the king has arrived. He's going to be ushering in his kingdom and he will save us. He's going to restore this world and rule as the king. What they didn't realize is that part of the program of that happening was the cross. You see, they thought that Jesus would come in on a war horse to destroy Rome. Turns out that's not how it was meant to happen. So imagine now a whole people group now in grief. A grief that's embodied in Mary that they put all their hope in this Jesus who is now dead. I believe that the echoes and the grief and the angst that's embodied in these people, which in turn is embodied in Mary in this story, I believe are embodied in the world today and in our lives today. You only have to turn on the TV and hear the cries of those in genocide. You only have to hear the cries of those who are locked up overseas. You only have to hear the cries of the people on the streets, you only have to walk through the streets of Perth and around Joondalup and the suburbs to see the homeless crying out. I work with people who in some cases feel mentally trapped, lost and in despair. I have met people and we've all been these people where we've put even a self-inflicted pain on ourselves through idolatry, thinking that money or power will rescue us and then we feel the angst 
when we realize that when we get it, it wasn't enough. And when we don't get it, we feel the angst and we just, we're just in a, in a mess. And so the world's grief and our grief and angst are embodied in this story. That as Mary grieves for the loss, we cry out in our own ways. And yet, embodied in this dialogue with Mary is the world's and our grief and angst now having a good ending and a true hope. Because the scene doesn't end there. Yet we have to appreciate that and embody that lest we become stoic and think everything's fine. No, no, no. We have to take seriously pain. We have to take seriously pain in our own lives and pain in the world. And yet, there is a Jesus who is risen again. Mary is in deep grief. And have you noticed what Jesus does? It is so beautiful. Have you noticed... Jesus just asks her a question. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Have you noticed that Jesus didn't rebuke her tears? He didn't just rock up and go, I'm here, and bring that, that stoic type joy. I'm all for joy, but he didn't shock jock her. He just asked her, Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Jesus allowed her to respond and then said her name. Perhaps we are called to answer to the question, perhaps why we are crying, to name our tears first, both in our lives and also in the world around us, so that we don't numb ourselves to the brokenness and the world's brokenness. To do that first. Jesus brings the question, why are you crying? It's a question and invites Mary to listen to her own pain. It's a question that we too are invited into. So ask yourself the question in your own pain. Why are you crying? What's your pain today? I'm crying because, how would you end that sentence? no sense of direction in life? Are you lamenting because there's no time? Unhappy with the way things turned out? Trauma that's affecting you? A family member who died? A friend who died? A diagnosis? A feeling of emptiness? A lament for the world? Feeling stuck? Feeling unfulfilled? The list can go on. Now, I have a theory as to why we don't want to think about these things. It's not just because they're morbid, and certainly that. But I think deep down we struggle to focus on these things because what if there is no way out? What if there is no happy ending to reality? I believe perhaps this is why we as the world deny the very idea of death and, and grief and lament. Because what if, and this is the fear of, of people, what if death does win in the end? It's overwhelming then to even focus on these things if we can't have any sense of cosmic hope. 
And so we struggle to focus on those things, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. Homelessness, genocide, mental health, existential angst, you name it. We fear that there isn't a happy ending. That even when we rightly do things that focus on alleviating the plight of the poor, and even if we do rightly in a non-stoic way, appreciate the good gift of life against the finiteness of life, something which, by the way, even, even our Bible encourages us to do that in Ecclesiastes, for example. However, against the cosmic backdrop of history, unless we have an ultimate hope, we can still, we can still bury our heads in the sand. After all, the eventual heat death of the universe is coming within a story of the universe that doesn't have hope. We'll all be forgotten and there'll be no, exist- no one in existence to remember anything. Eternally forgotten. So I can understand why perhaps the world, ourselves included, don't face the question that Jesus asked Mary. I can understand why we don't want to be honest with our tears, the hurts, the pains in our life and in the world around us. But we are called to first face the question that's asked of Mary first. Why are you crying? To embody the pain. And then, and only then, find good news on the far side of it. We're scared to face the question because maybe there isn't good news. But thanks be to God, we aren't just left with the question, why are you crying? We're also left with a simple response from Jesus, Mary. And her world lights up. Joy on the far side of her pain and grief, not in spite of it. There is something about the way Jesus says her name that she knows instantly that it's Jesus. And therefore, subsequently, that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. We can name and not ignore the world's grief and angst and not, name, and not name and ignore our pains and angst in our lives because Jesus names us. For only living people can presently and verbally speak. And so Jesus speaking to Mary and subsequently to us is a sign that Jesus is alive. Jesus overcoming death isn't just a nice story. It changes everything. It says that against the backdrop of a, of a story out there in the world that says everything is dismal and coming to an end, we can say that there is a better story, that there is a hope. Notice in the text, in verse 1, it says, John, the writer John says, on the first day of the week. Now, I think John's, uh, the writer John is doing a bit of a wink and a nudge when he says that. That's a throwback to the first day of creation in Genesis. What is John saying when he says the first day of the week here? It's the first day of the week of new creation. It's the first day of the week of the Alom Haba, the life of the age to come, broken forth in the present in the person of Jesus. And remember, as I said before, part of new creation is resurrection for all people. 
It's the hope that those who want to be part of God's kingdom rule on earth as it is in heaven will be part and participate in God's restored world in Jesus. So there's obviously an overlap here because it hasn't happened to everybody 2,000 years ago. We still live in a very broken world. But we can say that through Jesus, the signpost to that future It's almost as if God's future has rushed into the present in the person of Jesus in his resurrection. That by by Jesus rising again from the dead, Jesus' resurrection is an advanced sign, an advanced hope of God's new world broken forth into the present. And that, my friends, is good news. That there is a better story to reality to believe in. And there is a true story. A true story because we have a risen Christ who rises again on two solid resurrected legs. People have often said that perhaps believing in Jesus is an emotional crutch. I, uh, look, I've got plenty of friends like this and... and I want to hear what they say, and yet I also want to humbly respond. We all have an emotional crutch. Every, you know, people who seek after power are controlled by power. People who seek after approval are controlled by approval. People who seek after money are controlled by money. Everybody has a crutch. Here's the difference, though. When Jesus rises again from the dead, he rises again on two solid resurrected legs. A crutch implies something fake. What we have in the resurrection is the affirmation that God's world has started and that we see God's world being started in the person of Jesus. The revelation that death indeed did die, death on Good Friday, we see that in the person of Jesus, in his resurrection. And so now, for not only us, but for the whole world, there is a hope that in the end it doesn't end in the eventual heat death of the universe. But it ends in resurrection. It ends in new creation. It ends in a world made new, a world, a, a Perth, a Joondalup where there's no more homelessness. A Perth and a Joondalup where there is no more death. A Perth and a Joondalup where there is no more homelessness and no more angst. And rather, we as a people loving God and loving neighbor in resurrected bodies. You know, the very idea that Jesus rose again from the dead, it is a scandal to both the modern and ancient mind. Because after all, we know dead people stay dead. We see all around us, from the withering plant in the summer sun to the dying of a beloved friend, there is a finality to physical things. Even the biggest structures rust. Even the most powerful stars across the galaxies eventually turn cold and collapse. I've seen my pets die. I have sung Amazing Grace over my dying grandfather. I have heard the words over the phone he has gone of that beloved mentor. And yes, I've even killed my cactus. Turns out watering, cactuses don't need a lot of water. The food in my fridge rots when left uneaten. And you and I are getting older the day by day. So there seems to be a pattern, death, decay, death, decay. The pattern remains the same. And yet, this is why Jesus' resurrection is so scandalous. Because when Jesus rose again from the dead, he changed the default mode 
of human existence, of, 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 of the very physicality of reality in himself, because we have a Jesus who is risen again from the dead and is still alive. What a scandal to the modern and ancient mind. It's hard for us to grasp. But don't you see that if God's future for the world is embodied in the resurrected Jesus, that means that one day this world will be an undying world. I can't even imagine that. That is so mind-boggling. And yet that is the hope. It's as if in the resurrection we see the default mode of reality changed forever. I'm going to read a long quote, but it's an important one, I believe. This particular pastor says this. You have these experiences. And some of these experiences fill you with hope and life. Sometimes it's a beautiful song. Sometimes it's holding the hand of your young daughter. Sometimes it's sitting by the bed as your grandfather takes his last breath. Sometimes it's a holiday meal with relatives. Sometimes it's a friend from school. Sometimes it's that moment at work when you get the sense that what you're doing matters. We have these moments of meaning, these moments of substance, these moments when you say, yes, there's a point to all of this. And then we have those other moments, the moments of despair, the moments when it doesn't go well, the long, cold silences, that there's a thing when the alarm goes off in the morning, you say, another day. There's that thing when you're driving to work and you say, what's the point of it all? There's that small habit that grew and grew, and now it's like a destructive pattern. You don't know what to do with it. And so what happens ever so gradually, if we don't guard our heart, is that we become gradually overtaken by this pervasive sense that there might not be a point to it. Underneath it is actually random and pointless. And so what happens in those good, beautiful, true, moving, inspiring moments, the lump in the throat, the tear in the eye, that sense of when you embrace and somebody and it feels like you're holding the universe in your hands, those moments feel like they're just little detours and escapes of how it really is, which is cold, dark, lonely, and pointless. Resurrection is the opposite. Resurrection says, oh no, those glimpses, they're actually the real thing. They're actually the thing that undergird the whole thing. Just that moment when that person said that kind word and ignited the whole new world in your heart. That wasn't just an aberration of how things are. That was a sign, a symbol, a glimpse, a glance of how it actually is. Resurrection says that this world is our home, that our home is good. Resurrection says that not only is our home good, but everything about our home that is wrong, twisted, broken, destructive, flawed and failed, everything about it, whether it may be hurt, whether it may be something like cancer, that is real and however big the bruises and however much blood is on the floor whatever it is however real it is and however much it broke your heart in the end something in in a really 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 hard described way it's all temporary that in fact a new creation bursting forth right here in the midst of this one that there is a new heaven and a new earth coming together and that in Jesus in his resurrection insists that the conquering of death that in the conquering of death, he has brought about something new, something you can trust, that whatever is holding you down, whatever feels like a weight chained to your ankle does not have the last word. 
That is resurrection. And so we turn back to this sacred dialogue. We see the name, we, we name the grief in Mary's tears, and then we get named by the Jesus that has defeated death. And so it's a good news, a happy ending to the whole world. And within that, our lives, grief and angst has met my good ending and a real hope. Amen. Behold, the dwelling places with God, so says the writer John in his revelation. And he says, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. My friends, to the extent to which we allow ourselves to trust in this beautiful story, this hope for creation, is the extent that deep down you have a hope bursting inside you. It will change everything right now. And so now, with that as hope, we can actually go out and live the gospel, knowing that the ultimate stresses and anxieties in the world won't have the final say in the end. Remember, this is, this is new creation bursting forth from the tomb. But God's future is it's broken into the present through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's still there in the future. But we are called now to be people who go out into the world like Mary and say, I have seen the Lord. That we be a people who embody the good news of the kingdom, the good news of new creation. And we go out into the world and say, I have seen the Lord. That we be a people who, whether it doesn't matter whether it be through friendship, through relationships, through work. It doesn't matter through the mundane, to the big things, to the small things. What are ways that we can show the signposts, the glimpses of new creation in whatever we do to live God's future in the here and the now by the power of God's Spirit. You know, it's often been said that Mary mistook Jesus as the gardener. I actually want to say that Mary was right. Jesus is the gardener. He is the one who plants the seeds of new creation and brings seeds of new beginnings into our life so that we in turn embody that hope into the world and community around us. And we have the Mary of tears like that. We have the, the tears like that of Mary to become watering for this new world that God is making. She is given, and notice this, she is given a calling out of response to her tears. She takes her grief of the perceived brokenness and expectations of Israel's rescue, and now seeks a ministry to her people in light of that, that Jesus has indeed rescued her people. Here's what I'm saying. Where does your heart break? Where are your tears, your grief? What are they? Your holy anger, your lament. Because maybe what breaks your heart is what breaks God's heart, and maybe what breaks God's heart and your heart is what God is saying to you. Use those tears as the watering for new creation. I can only speak for myself, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm a counselor at work, and you know, part, of my, part of my calling is to, see, is to see mental wholeness in people. And actually, when I was younger, to, 
to, to see the angst and the, 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 the heartbreak that people so mentally stuck were going through broke my heart. And to have that brokenness, so that I went, right, God, what am I called to do? What are you called? What breaks your heart? Because out of that might be your ministry. Can I have the band come up? Thank you. She runs out and says, I have seen the Lord. My friends, you might be somebody here today who, who struggles with this story of a resurrected Lord. That maybe you're a bit unsure about it. Faith isn't about certainty. Faith is about trust. You aren't called to be certain. You don't have to get rid of all your all your questions and everything as you approach Jesus. What would it be like just to trust in the story? Just to trust. Not be certain, but to trust in the story. Like that of a trust fall. You, you know, it's not called a cognitive belief fall, I have it all together fall. It's called a trust fall. What would it be like to just trust that perhaps there is an empty tomb, that perhaps Jesus is risen, and that perhaps there is a good story to all of history. How might that change your life, the way you live, move, and have your being? How might you view yourself differently? How might you view your job differently, your relationships differently, if you trust in this story? How might your life change? How might, the, how, might how you interact with people around you change if you knew and trusted in this story? How might we view the world? How might we live? The whole point of trust is that you don't have to have it all figured out. There's a trust into a bigger story, a bigger story of the cosmos that ends in hope and ends in new creation that we see embodied in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My friends, Once we hear the grief of Mary, once we embody that grief, may we hear the Lord Jesus Christ say our name. May we hear that, allow that joy to rise up in our hearts, that out of that place of grief on the far side of that pain that we have felt, that we run out into the world and in all, in all the many ways, whether it be through work, through relationships, spoken or unspoken, that we in our life say, I have seen the Lord. In a moment, we're going to go into communion. Can I actually have the ushers for communion to come up? Thank you. Thank you very much. If you are somebody who's never taken communion or been unsure about what, what is communion, 
It's essentially a remembrance. It's a remembrance meal. And particularly on the far side of Jesus' resurrection, it's a remembrance of many of things. It's a remembrance of his death. And it's also a remembrance of the resurrection. It's a way of embodying, quite literally in your body, through, through bread and a bit of grape juice, to say that this is the body, that this is the blood of Jesus. That as you take it, you remember. But I actually also want it to be, not only as a place of remembrance, but if you're somebody here today who has perhaps never taken communion, all it is is a bit of, bit of bread, grab it, you dip it into the, the, the grape juice and you have it. It's more than just that, but on one level it's that, okay. But here's, here's what I'm trying to say. If you're someone who's never taken communion today, I want communion to be the, your trustful moment. I'm not going to do an altar call in the sense of having people come down here. This, is, this will be the call to the altar. This will be the call to the table as we call it. If you're a Christian, come up. And if you're somebody who, who wants to experience this love and get to know this love and trust in this love, you are welcome. This is a table for all people who want to move more towards the love of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God. And for those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have come for the first time. You who have tried to follow Jesus. You who have failed in following Jesus. And you who have just decided to follow Jesus for the first time. Come, let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now if necessary and go and be a forgiver, then run back because it is the Lord who invites you. It is God's will for those who desire Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit should come and encounter here today. So come. Come and receive communion.